Hey guys, it's me, Reagan Rose with Redeeming Productivity. This is the podcast that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. I've got a great episode for you today. I'm talking with Matthew Everhard. Longtime listeners will recognize that name because he is a Jonathan Edwards scholar who has been on the show before. We're going to talk about Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. We talk about the Puritan view of salvation. We talk about the value of weekly routines and how to take notes like Jonathan Edwards. I absolutely loved this discussion with Matthew, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it too. I wanted to say before we get into things that this is the final episode of season four. That's right. Season four of the podcast is coming to a close. I'm going to be taking a few weeks off here to prepare for the next one, but hope you stick around because, oh man, we have a good season five coming up and I can't wait to show you some of the interviews I already have lined up. But in the meantime, if you still need your weekly dose of productivity from a Christian worldview, make sure you're signed up for my newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. I send that out every Thursday. It's got some insights. It has some links that I found around the web that I think will be helpful to you in your journey to being a more productive Christian. It is one of my favorite pieces of content that I create each week. And so if you're not already subscribed to that, check it out. Just go to newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com. Are you a believer who struggles to manage your time well and stay organized? Well, come join the community of productivity-minded believers in Redeeming Productivity Academy. Members have access to new courses each month, monthly habit challenges, the Productivity Book Club, and live calls with me, plus much, much more. So if you're looking for that kick in the pants to really get on track for 2022, Redeeming Productivity Academy is the group for you. But if you do want to join, make sure you join quickly because registration for Redeeming Productivity Academy is closing Tuesday, February 14th, and we will not be accepting new members until May. So if you want to get in, now is the time. To learn more about Redeeming Productivity Academy and to sign up, just go to redeemingproductivity.com slash academy. That's redeemingproductivity.com slash academy. Also want to give a big shout out to the supporters of this show. I would not be able to keep creating Bible-based productivity content without the help of people like you. So thank you. And if you're getting value out of this show, my newsletter, videos, or other productivity resources, consider becoming a supporter of Redeeming Productivity. You can do so through giving a one-time or recurring donation at redeemingproductivity.com donation, or by joining the Redeeming Productivity Patreon at patreon.com slash redeemingprod. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the podcast that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I'm your host, Reagan Rose. Well, today I'm joined by Matthew Everhard. He's the senior pastor of Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. Uh, In addition to being a pastor, Matthew is a Jonathan Edwards scholar, and he's written several volumes on that uh, American Puritan, including his latest book, Holy Living, Jonathan Edwards' 70 Resolutions for Living the Christian Life. You can also find him on his awesome YouTube channel under his name, Matthew Everhard. Uh, And I'll, I'll share links to all of this in the description. And longtime listeners of the podcast will probably remember that a little over a year ago, I had Matthew on way back in episode 55, 
And so I'm really excited to have you back again, Matthew. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, hey, everybody. What's up? I'm very glad to be here. By the way, let me just say, if you happen to live in Western Pennsylvania, uh, Gospel Fellowship PCA is just north of Pittsburgh by 20 minutes or so. Uh, we're a Reformed Bible-believing church, so if you're looking for a church like that, you found one, please come check us out. Uh, we have services on the Lord's Day at 8.30 and 11. We do Wednesday nights and a bunch of other good things, so we'd love to have you come visit at some point. Yeah, one of these days, I'm going to get over there. Now that I'm not so far from you, uh, I was just almost in Pennsylvania just a couple weeks ago, right on the border there in Ohio. So one of these days, I'll get over to Pittsburgh, and, and we'll see each other in person, hopefully. <laughs> Kind of the occasion for having you back on was this new book, um, which you graciously sent me a copy of. And, I, and if you guys are readers of my newsletter, Reagan's Roundup, you'll know I shared this as one of my favorite things in a few issues back. It is so good. I, I love, um, it's no secret, I love Jonathan Edwards, which is why I think we have such an affinity, uh, besides loving the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this, I just love this because you... You're a scholar, you know Edwards, you've, you've researched his life, you you know your theology, and you're taking that and you're making it practical. You're, it's like you're asking, how, how can we look at Edwards and his resolutions, and what do we do with those for ourselves? And so what, what would you say, I guess maybe the first question I should ask you if for people who have no reference point, who is Jonathan Edwards and what are these resolutions? Great question. Well, Jonathan Edwards is considered to be America's greatest theologian. He was born in 1703. And just to kind of place that historically, we're talking pre-founding um, pre of the nation here, 1776, of course, for that. Um, and Edwards is born roughly between um, the Salem witch trials and the revolution. So he get, kind of goes in that in-between period. Um, he lives until 1758. And he's known as being America's greatest theologian um, for a number of reasons, probably the most significant of which is his role in the Great Awakening, the Great Religious Revival that um, shook the eastern portion of what is now the United States um, for several years there. Great Awakening is a true revival, a genuine movement of God's spirit in which churches uh, found themselves being awakened to the gospel Tens of thousands of converts were made during that time, and uh, we might think of such personalities as the Wesley brothers and, of course, George Whitfield, the greatest of all um, preachers, one of the great preachers of all time. And Edwards' role in the Great Awakening was sort of as the theologian to try to understand what was happening at that time. And so Edwards is significant to us for, well, actually several reasons. First, as a theologian, because he helps to contribute to our understanding of what revivalism is, and especially how uh, the individual soul is transformed by the good news of the gospel. But then Edwards is also a philosopher, a first-rate philosopher on the same level as men like Locke or Kant or Kierkegaard. He's true. He's a true philosopher, and um, he has much to say, especially about the human will in his book, Freedom of the Will, and then finally, we might think of Edwards as both a local church pastor, which he was for most of his life, and as a, a missionary, too. And ironically, one of the most important books he ever wrote in his own time was the biography of David Brainerd, which in itself inspired an entire generation of young Christians to go into the mission field. So Edwards is remarkable for all those things. Um, many of us who are in pastoral ministry love him for his sermons, which are easily accessible to most people. 
And you can kind of begin in some of his shorter works, which we could discuss a number of those. And then some people like to progress to his harder works, uh, like Freedom of the Will or The End for Which God Created the World. Um, but Edwards is something who has something for everybody. And he's, he's a true polymath in the best sense of the word. He is a master of many different fields of knowledge. And uh, Edwards studies is just a super broad field of study because you can become an Edwards scholar uh, by looking at him from any one of those particular angles, either historically, theologically, philosophically, or missiologically. So he's a very interesting person to study, and I've gained a lot from him in my own life over the last 10 years or so. And now what about the the resolutions? There's 70 resolutions, and they're written when he's a, a relatively young man. What? And those are sort of the centerpiece of this book. What I don't want you to read all 70 of them, but what are those? What are they, what are they, what are they concerned with? And I guess mm-hmm. the broader question is how do you, what can we gain from examining this, this guy's resolutions that he made? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So the resolutions are one of the shorter pieces that somebody could read if they wanted to familiarize themselves with Edwards's works. In fact, you could read the resolutions in one sitting very easily in just 10 to 15 minutes or so, depending on how fast or slow you read. Um, But it's a good introduction to kind of the mind and the heart of Jonathan Edwards from a very personal perspective. The resolutions would be in that sub-genre of material that we would call his personal writings. So that would include like his diary and some of his miscellanies. Um, And Edwards wrote the resolutions when he was just 19 years old. So we're talking about a teenager here now. Uh, You might want to think about any teenagers that you know and um, ask yourself, what are they interested in and what motivates that person? You'll probably know a few teenagers that are very highly, uh, highly inclined with great knowledge and skills and ready to go to college and others perhaps that are just consumed with, uh, you know, flipping through TikTok or something like that. But Edwards's resolutions are remarkable because they share the depth and the profound um, wisdom that he already has as a young man. And yet also a spiritual profundity, which almost everybody who reads the resolutions will admit, um, seems to go beyond what we would expect from most 19-year-olds. Now, when Edwards wrote the resolutions, um, He was not necessarily inventing a genre. He was not the first person to write resolutions for himself. This was a thing that was commonly done in Edwards' time. In fact, anybody who had some sort of inclination towards a public life might write for themselves a set of resolutions by which they would um, sort of guard their own trajectory as they go into public life. And so we think of uh, Benjamin Franklin, who wrote a set of, I think it's 13 resolutions. His are quite different from Edwards's. And then notably, uh, George Washington, the first president of the United States, he had a list of 100 plus resolutions. And when you compare the resolutions of these three great men, it's very interesting that each one of them had a pretty firm idea of what kind of person they wanted to become. Edwards is clearly consumed with a life that would glorify God in the highest of ways. Franklin's is consumed with the idea of citizenship and trying to be the best, um, the, the best individual contributing to, um, a, you know, a young nation, what would become a young nation. And then George Washington is largely concerned with his public life as an officer in the military. Some of his are actually humorous. He says things like, 
don't warm your feet on a fire if uh, if somebody else is roasting meat at the same time. Uh, he talks about keeping his teeth clean in front of his uh, in front of his lesser ranked soldiers, which is only ironic because he lost his teeth and had yeah, one of the worst sets of dentures. Um, but, but they really show you uh, a good glimpse of who each man wanted to be. And for Edward, certainly it's true that he kind of. Um, he, by God's grace, was able to sculpt himself, let's say, into becoming the kind of pastor that he wanted to be. So mm-hmm. it's a very early, it's important early writing of Edwards. It's remarkable how much, I mean, just the few examples you gave, how much that, not just the clarity of the, what these guys had in mind, what they wanted to be, but just like in terms of outcome. And obviously we're, we're looking in, in reverse, so we kind of have a bias where we evaluate that great men, of course, they became great, but it's just interesting that those men by and large became the type of person they set out to be with very clear intent. Um, and I'd say, I think for a lot of us, we don't have that, you know, we, we, we don't know what we want to be, or even I think in, in Christian circles, oftentimes there's maybe that's viewed unspiritually as sort of, um, a type of ambition that, that maybe that's vain ambition. It's not God honoring. Um, but Edwards was very clear that his his main aim was to to bring God more glory with his life, and that's what you know the intersection with what we're doing here um, with talking about productivity in terms of eternity, in terms of our chief end. Edwards is really just such a good example of that, especially in terms of that he had a a goal in mind from very young age. I mean, people can't see this right now, but I, we're we're doing this over Zoom. If you're listening, you won't be able to see it, but you have one of his resolutions on your shirt right now. It says, resolve mm-hmm. to live with all my might. Um, maybe speak to to some of that for, for us to, like, should I have a resolution? Should I have, should I be writing these? Are these useful? Are these um, legalistic? You know, there might be concerns that come up. Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I have not yet for myself really written any such resolutions, though I've been studying Edwards's for a number of years and preparing for writing this book. Part of me wants to sit down and do that at some point, but the other part of me is concerned. And uh, I'll share with you briefly why. And of course, I do cover this in the book, but um, Edwards starts off, I think, with the best of intentions. He says at the very beginning of the resolutions that he hopes to go through them once a week and to compare them to his current state of his spiritual walk with Christ. And the resolutions actually have a symbiotic relationship with another of his personal writings called his diary, wherein Edwards will comment in his diary in longer form about how he's doing keeping up with his resolutions. And whenever he finds himself failing in any particular regard, he may either strengthen that resolution, perhaps rewrite it a bit, or create new resolutions in addition to those that he already has. So um, by way of example, his first set of resolutions is about 30 resolutions long. Good resolutions, uh, many of them I would certainly uh, admire and even aspire to myself. But as he goes through this process of self-discernment, it becomes very clear very early on that Edwards is disappointing himself over and over again and needs to re-fortify himself by writing more resolutions. And so as you read through the diary alongside the resolutions, you see the spiritual frustration that is building up in Edwards' own heart 
as he realizes that he is unable to keep the resolutions that he's made for himself. And so this has led some Edward scholars to use a term like spiritual rigorism to describe his mindset in this time, which is kind of like a pull myself up by the bootstraps type of spirituality. Now, I do think that if you asked Edwards that question, are you trying to sanctify yourself? He would clearly be able to differentiate between justification and sanctification, and he would ascribe all of that work to the Holy Spirit, I have no doubt. But when it came to practicing it in his own life, the way that he went about it was utterly frustrating to the extent that within just a few months of the resolutions project's commencement, he actually abandons it and stops using the resolutions entirely to check his own life. So the period of actually utilizing the resolutions, as brilliant as they are, and I, I love many of the resolutions, uh, he realized that it wasn't going to be practical for his whole life long to continue to minutely record his failures according to these resolutions, that that was gonna be bad for him. And in 1740, uh, this is more than 10 years later, remember he writes the resolutions in 1722, he ends up um, looking back on that time period in another document called his personal narrative. And on one hand, he says that th these years, 19 and 20 years of age, were his high point spiritually. On the other hand, he says that he was concerned that he depended far too much on himself rather than the Holy Spirit. So I do think we have to kind of take this whole idea into some advisement that we should be, if we're going to write any resolutions, we should be careful that we're not doing it in our own strength or from the strength that comes from the flesh. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. It's interesting. You know, we um, recently have done some work on uh, goal setting and kind of evaluating some of the literature out there, secular literature on goal, like making goals for yourself and problems even in the, the in psychologically, like where people just pragmatically, when you set goals and you don't reach them, what does that do to you in terms of uh, how, how it makes you feel, whether, whether goals are a good source of motivation, like what is the point of a goal? And then trying to look at, at scripture and examples there and, and work out theologically, how should a Christian think about goals? And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, that that is maybe a category you could think of Edward's resolutions in is this is what he was aspiring to be. But there's ways, there's ways in which you engage with your own aspirations, even when you write them down and what you're trying to get out of them. You know, like if you try to get out of, I have this goal to be this kind of father, for example, you, you're not like, and like you said, Edwards would agree, you're not going to that that goal is not enough to make you into that person. That's that's probably not even enough to motivate you to do it. Um, it's going to require the spirit's work and, of course, your daily um, habits and what you do. Uh, but I, yeah, I'd be curious, even just your own thoughts. But that that doesn't, to me, this <laughs> is my personal thought. It doesn't make the resolution not worth having. Like it's 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 or a goal not worth having. It's almost how you utilize it, because I'm sure that even after he quit examining himself through those lenses, he still had, from a young age, crystallized. He'd made it clear to himself what he was about. And that's the kind of thing, even, and of course, since he was reviewing them for several months, that's the sort of thing that settles down deep within you. And even if you don't read it, the, the clarity is helpful. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I'm going to read a few of the resolutions here in just a second, if you'll permit me. I think that'll help oh, the listener to kind of understand what we're talking about when we say resolutions. 
So I think there's maybe a, a hair that we could split between a goal and a resolution. A goal might be something, you know, they say in the business world that they should be measurable goals. Like I'm going to sell 10 widgets by 30 days, something that you can say I've, I've either accomplished it or I've failed. The resolutions um, have to do with mostly his, uh, well, three things in my book. I categorize them in three ways. The first category is what we're going to call the existential resolutions. And those have to do with what Edwards believes is the very purpose of life itself. So that's actually a pretty good thing to figure out. And mm -hmm. I, would, I would urge everybody to, as quickly as you can, figure out what life is about. Otherwise, <laughs> you, you, are, <laughs> you are on the wrong train. Maybe you're going the wrong yeah. direction, right? <laughs> that's right. So in the very first couple of resolutions, he clearly establishes that life is about glorifying God and to paraphrase the Westminster Shorter Catechism, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So Edwards knows that. So that's a, that's obviously, um, he's, he's got that right. He's figured that out from a young age. The second kind of goals are what I call his ethical uh, resolutions. I'm sorry, I said goals, resolutions. Uh, ethical resolutions, which are primarily concerned with speech, the uh, the careful monitoring of, of our, our verbal language. Edwards is very concerned about this. It comes up over and over again in the resolutions. And then duty. He is a person who is highly inclined towards doing what is right, doing what is just, doing what is honorable. So we see a number of resolutions concerned with that. And then the third category, which I think may be the most interesting, are what I call his eschatological resolutions. And those have to do with the end of life. Um, he talks quite a bit about death. Um, he thinks much on his own dying and the circumstances thereabout. And he thinks on heaven and hell. And I do think that that too is very helpful to the Christian. So let me read off a couple of these. Yeah, please. And uh, that'll give the listener just a little bit of uh, understanding here. So the first resolution, resolution number one, says, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. We hear that catechetical language there, Westminster Shorter One. My own good, profit, and pleasure in my whole duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet, how many and how great soever. So there in that first resolution, that's kind of like the master uh, resolution, which essentially is like the foundation for all the others. And in the first resolution, you hear a little bit of existential, because he's talking about the purpose of life is to glorify God. You hear a little bit about the ethical, because he's already talking about duty and the good of mankind and the good of himself. And then you hear a little bit of the uh, eschatological because he's already talking about however long I live. This idea of the shortness and brevity of life is going to come back again and again. So in a, in a sense, you could say the rest of the 69 resolutions are sort of a commentary on the first resolution. Uh, and there's a number of ones that I think are very beautiful. Like you said, number six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Uh, number seven, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's a fantastic resolution. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's see here. Number 10, resolved whenever I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. I mean, what kind of a 19-year-old is thinking about things like this? It's really quite profound. And he goes on to talk about um, guarding his speech. He says that a number of times. Um, one of them, number 28, is interesting. 
resolve to study the scripture so steadily and constantly that I find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Wow. And so on and on they go. And many of these are absolutely br uh, brilliant and they're beautiful and certainly worth emulating. I think one of the things that first attracted me to Edwards was his emphasis on the brevity of life. And like when I, when I think about my own interest in, in personal productivity, making the most of, most of this life, I, I know that it's been heavily influenced by Jonathan Edwards and by those, those three things, the, the, the existential, why am I here? What's this about? Okay. If it's about God's glory, that then, then what should I be doing? What does my life look like? And then the third one, the, the eschatological, where am I going? What's the end of all this? And that, you know, that has knock on effects to what you do today to maximize how you're living your life for God's glory. Um, but that fight, that last part, the eschatological, I think that that's probably the one that like maybe sounds the strangest to modern ears, like him even talking about hell or like meditating on the circumstances of his own death. It sounds like, you know, he, he was wearing all black and he had his nose pierced and his fingernails painted black, <laughs> you know, like he's, he's, it sounds morbid. And so do, do you think, do you think Edwards was overly morbid or do you think the the brevity of life is just something that's underemphasized today in the modern church? I think it's the latter. I think that the Puritan emphasis on the brevity of life is a good thing and is probably a corrective to our modern uh, idea of um, safetyism or safism, um, as well as uh, perpetual youth, perpetual beauty. I think all these things are kind of a distorted lens through which we see our lives. We think of ourselves as always going to be healthy. Uh, we, we always want to be safe. We want life to go on forever. Um, we're very concerned um, with anything that would even speak of death. I mean, even if you go to like a funeral home, they're, you know, they, they're supposed to look like a living room because they don't want you to feel uncomfortable. Uh, many funerals that I go to now, they no longer have the body present because that's uncomfortable. Um, parents will sometimes hide their children from a funeral. They won't take their children to a funeral until they're, I don't know, 15 or something. I've heard mm -hmm. things like that. But the Puritans lived with the reality of death at all times. Um, Edwards and his contemporaries are concerned with imminent threats and dangers, such as uh, war, uh, outbreaks, skirmish, skirmishes from the French or the Indians. Um, they're concerned with disease. They're concerned with so many, so many dangers of this, um, this earlier period of life so that they realize, I think, that life is short. You know, I, I did a funeral. I wanted to share the story. I did a funeral a while back um, for a young man who died unexpectedly. And a couple of days before the funeral, there was a rainbow outside when I was sitting on my porch. And um, it was su such an incredibly beautiful rainbow. I, I live on a hill. And I'm telling you, I could see the bottom of the rainbow. <laughs> Right. Like, <laughs> Did uh, you see like the, right the pot of gold? Did it you see the gold? pot of gold it is in my neighbor's <laughs> yard across, across the valley. And I ran inside to get my wife. I'm like, you have to see this rainbow. This is incredible. By the time I went to get my wife and she got out to the porch, literally 30 seconds, maybe it was gone. Hmm. And I thought to myself, Edwards would, would have probably written a miscellany about that rainbow because it 
truly captured both the beauty of life and the brevity of life. On one hand, Edwards believed with so many of the rest of us that life is precious, it is sacred, it is beautiful, it is to be savored and treasured and held on to as much as possible. And yet at the same time, every rainbow you've ever seen is there for just a moment and then it fades away. And uh, I was able to share that at the funeral, I think to some comfort to, to the family and their loss. But I think the resolutions do that for me. They help me to think about the fact that we only have so much time in this life. And the sooner we figure out the meaning of this whole thing and begin to love people with all of our heart, as Jesus taught us, um, that's, that is truly to be commended. That is the way to live, right? Amen. Well said. Well said. There's something you cover in the book that I found particularly helpful to me just in thinking about the Puritans. If if, if you're listening to this and, and you've read the Puritans, sometimes there are long periods in their own writings, especially if you read, you know, there's a lot of diaries or journals that have been published. And there's long periods where it's unclear whether whether they're saved or whether whether they even believe that they're Christians. There's... Um, there's several of those diaries I've read. Uh, Andrew Bonner comes to mind where it's uh, as you're reading through it, you're like, wait a second. I thought I thought he believed he was saved. Now he's not. And they seem to have and this is a criticism sometimes of Puritans is they seem to not have uh, an assurance of salvation. But at the end, there's this wonderfully helpful appendix where you talk about you call it the morphology of their salvation, or the shape of how the Puritans understood salvation. I'd, I'd love to hear you speak to that. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, for some people who have maybe read Pilgrim's Progress, this story perfectly captures the question that you're asking, because it has been pondered upon many times from readers, at what point does Christian become a Christian? Mm -hmm, Right. (laughs) Is it A, when he departs from uh, from the city of destruction? Is it a B when he makes it to the cross and he uh, has his guilt fall upon, fall off of his shoulders and it goes into the empty tomb? You remember that? There's several different scenes, especially in the early portion of the book, where you're thinking, okay, wait, I thought he was already a Christian. Right. And that goes back to this idea of the Puritan um, morphology of, of salvation, which is sort of the rubric of how they thought God worked in the soul. Now, let me just frame it up by saying for most evangelicals today, we commonly speak of getting saved. And I have no mm-hmm. objection to that language. Of course, salvation is the language that the New Testament and the Old Testament uses to describe what happens when God redeems a sinner. But often when we tell the, the story of our salvation, we boil it down to this one instant in which we, quote unquote, accepted Christ or received Christ. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that happened at a Billy Graham crusade, or maybe that happened at a youth group rally one night, uh, or somebody gave you a tract and you read it and believed. And so for most modern evangelicals, when we listen to a conversion story, we're listening for that moment, that instant. And sometimes if a person can't give you that, then you're like, oh, well, did it really happen? You know, we <laughs> right. kind of come at it with a little bit of like, well, well okay, well, when, when was your moment then? But the Puritans, they looked for more of a process than an instantaneous signing of a pledge card or something like that. They were looking for the the soul to begin to evidence uh, some maturity. And this comes out 
mostly when the Puritans would go to their pastor or the, to their elders to try to gain permission to come to the Lord's Supper. And in order to commune in the church, they would have to give a testimony of their salvation. So when Puritan pastors and elders listened for uh, a, a, an account of somebody's salvation, they were not necessarily listening for that one pledge card Billy Graham crusade moment. Instead, they were listening to hear in their testimony that the, their soul had gone through several different stages. Hmm. And so um, when it's usually described, some, some uh, theologians say there's three stages and some say there's four, but the stages go roughly like this. Um, first, a state of conviction. Second, a state of legal terror, and I'll define these here in a moment. Third, a state of humiliation. And then fourth, a stage of light. So the conviction stage is what they were listening for in their testimonies was, does this person kind of get it that this life is not all there is? Um, maybe somebody died. Maybe there was an accident. Uh, maybe so-and-so injured himself at the sawmill or whatever. And all of a sudden, they would have this feeling of, oh, my gosh. I kind of need to start thinking about eternity. Mm -hmm. And when a person would come to that place where they understand the, the brevity of life and that they were mortal, that one day their body would be in a grave, they called that conviction. Okay. So it was a position of fear. It was a position of fear, understanding one's mortality. After that, um, they would listen for what they called legal terrors. And this is actually described in Pilgrim's Progress. It's the scene where Christian comes to Mount Sinai and he feels that the mountain is going to fall on him and crush him to death. Well, the Puritans were listening for your understanding of the law of God. Do you understand that you cannot fulfill the law of God? You cannot obey the Ten Commandments. Um, you, you cannot merit, earn, or garner your salvation by any of your works whatsoever. And so if a person didn't understand that, then they were certainly not to be considered saved. And so they're listening then for the state of legal terrors to have come upon that person. Um, third, a state of humiliation. And this is where the person finally gets it. Okay, I am totally dead in my sin. I cannot obey the law. I cannot even convert myself or in the language of Westminster, prepare myself thereunto. There's nothing I can do to initiate the process of regeneration in myself. I am a dead sinner. And that stage, humiliation, would then give way as the Spirit of God does his work for what they called light. Finally, the person is born again and experiences some measure of assurance, which may be a struggle for, for years even. Um, but, but when they gave their testimonies, they were listening for those four stages. And so that's why Edwards um, actually has an argument with his parents about when it is that he has... Um, been made ready for the Lord's Supper. His parents thought that he had skipped the stage of legal terrors, huh. and they were concerned with that. And Edwards then really has to grapple with whether or not he's he's really in the faith uh, at any given time, especially in his in his younger period. That is fascinating. Yeah it it seems to me I'm just talking off the cuff here, but it seems to me there there's maybe in our modern understanding of it. Uh, maybe a, a combining together of the the miracle of conversion with our experience of it because i'm i'm sure i mean at some point theologically right the holy spirit takes up residence in the life of a believer so there is there is a point of conversion 
but there's a difference in our actual experience of it. And those, those two do not necessarily meet at uh, a moment of saying a prayer or, you know, walking an aisle or even just, you know, in, in your closet, in your home, right? Would that, would that be accurate? Yeah, I do think that there is, in reality, a moment in which the soul is born again, that it goes from death to life, that it goes from a state of deadness to a state of uh, life or awakenedness in the Holy Spirit. Uh, surely that must be an instantaneous act, because there is no uh, midway place between life and death. There's no kind of saved or halfway saved. But I think the Puritans were wise, though, when they listened to people's testimonies to make sure that they truly did understand one's relationship to death and one's relationship to the law. And that might actually be something that could benefit us. You know, if you're um, I don't know if you're an elder in your church, but in our church, when people join the congregation, the elders still to this day, we listen for a testimony of saving grace before we permit people to come to the Lord's table. And all too often, uh, if a person says they're saved, we say, okay, but maybe what we should do is kind of use that rubric to ask them some pressing questions about what do they mean that they're saved? Mm -hmm. Um, Did you come to a place of utter desperation such that you confess that Christ is the only way of possible salvation, or are you still actually trying to earn it by some sort of religiosity or good deed doing, even if you think joining the church is that good deed? Um, then this sort of older rubric uh, might be a course corrective. And they would use this to put the brakes on people. You know, if a person professes that they're saved, okay, but does your maturity and your Christian life bear that out? And so Puritans had no problem putting the brakes on somebody for years. If they did not Mm -hmm. think they were ready for the Lord's table, they did not rush into that. And so Edwards himself doesn't, uh, doesn't actually commune with the church until I believe in his early twenties. So, you know, his dad was a pastor. His grandpa was a pastor. You'd think they'd have this kid up and, and communing at the table by the time he's six, but no, they really, really pumped the brakes to make sure that somebody fully understood the law and the gospel. Maybe we would say that's too slow, but then again, I'm sure that they would say that we are far too gratuitous with how we approach the table. Uh, I want to kind of take a turn here and talk a little bit more about you um, and some of your upcoming projects, some of the things you're doing, you're going to be teaching a course on Edwards. Is that right? Where are you teaching that and when? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. I am super pumped. Um, so there's a seminary just south of our position here called Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Now, that's not to be confused with um, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. They sound almost alike. I went to RTS Uh, But this is RPTS. It's the Denominational Seminary of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Uh, By the way, just for listeners, I'm part of the PCA, actually. That's not my denomination, but I love the RPCNA guys. And um, over the months that I've been in the Pittsburgh area, I've been developing relationships there with some of the professors. Barry York, the president there, is a good buddy of mine. And so I joined the President's Council, which is sort of an advisory group at RPTS, and then um, we did some more things together, did a conference together with some of the some of the professors there, and they asked me to teach a course at RPTS. So I am super thrilled to, to do this because I've always like, look, I'm a local pastor, right? I, my heart is in pastoral ministry, but I've always kind of wanted to teach at the seminary level, too. 
And so they gave me a blank slate and said, you can teach anything you want to. Um, um, we assume it would be Jonathan Edwards, but <laughs> let us know what you want to do. And so they gave me the opportunity to kind of shape a class based on Edwards. So I'm going to do a class. I forget the exact title, but it's something like the, the, um, the spiritual development or uh, the something like that, personal development, spiritual development of Jonathan Edwards. And so I'm going to talk a lot about um, his own testimony, his own life story, as well as some of the things like the resolutions, the diary, the personal narrative, the miscellanies, basically all the things that I'm interested in Edwards, I get to teach as a class. Now, the bad news is that that's not going to be until next year. It's a whole year from now. So I have some time to prep for it, but I'm super excited. And I do think this would be the kind of thing that some listeners might be interested in because this is going to be a one credit class and it's going to be a weekend class. So you'll do the readings ahead of time, come to RPTS at Pittsburgh for just a weekend. Uh, we'll spend a bunch of hours together in the classroom and then uh, you turn in your assignments afterwards. So even if you're not in seminary, you might want to drop in on this class. If you're anywhere in the area, I think it'd be a really cool opportunity to maybe take a first seminary class or if you're in seminary anywhere, you want to pick up a credit or you just want to come hang out with me and talk about Edwards for a weekend, that would be an awesome opportunity. So that's that's coming up. I'm very excited about that. That is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned this, you, you know, you're you're a pastor. You're also a writer. You you post frequently on your YouTube channel. You're a father and a husband, and you have a lot that you do, a lot of duties. And I guess the question is, how, how do you balance that? I know we talked about this a little bit um, about a year and a half ago when we talked, but I'd love to hear you you break that down. It's so many different responsibilities. How do you how do you balance them and how do you decide what is not essential, things that you cut out? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I binge watch uh, Redeeming Productivity podcasts and, and you basically to pick up all your, all your <laughs> that's skills. the best way to spend all of your time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, really. I think your, your stuff is awesome, man. I've definitely learned a few things, um, from you over time. I think we're wired very similarly though, that we're both concerned about using our time in a, in a maximally efficient way. I've always just kind of been like that. Mm -hmm. um, even my, uh, you know, being consumed in Edwards, I think he, he says very similar things in, in the resolution. So again, just commend those to the listener to read through. But yeah, I, I balance a lot of hats. Um, I'm the kind of person that I get, I get um, blue, so to speak, when I'm, when I'm not busy, I, I tend to do better when I'm busy than when I'm, when I'm not. Uh, my wife could probably tell you that on my day off, I'm usually the most moody because <laughs> I like to wake I'm the up. Same, every day. I am the exact same way. Saturdays. Yeah, I like man, to wake up every day and just got to have a hobby it, or you know? something to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always tempted to work even on my day off, but I try I try to maintain, you know, good Sabbatarian predisposition as a Westminster guy, Westminster subscribing Presbyterian, we have a good theology of the Sabbath. So I try to adhere to that. But um, I think for me, probably it's just some really disciplined and ingrained habits that I have developed over the years that probably pay the most dividends for me. I'm the kind of person, Reagan, I think you're probably the same way that when I determine that I'm going to do a particular thing, I seem to just be able to do it. That's my one superpower that the Lord has given me. 
I'm not particularly intelligent. I'm not particularly strong. I'm not particularly handsome or athletic or anything like that. I don't have natural abounding gifts and skills like some people do, except this one thing that I have is that I, I have the ability to determine a course and then actually carry that out. So if I resolve to do a particular thing um, for some reason, I'm able to set those kind of daily habits and just grind away at it until it's hmm. done. Uh, that's how I've written most of my books. That's how I've written most of my chapters. I have a goal right now to read through the New, T New Testament in Greek. Um, I just do it every single day without fail. And I think it's kind of that, that stick to that in large part gets me through it. But then I use some, you know, some uh, tools like you do. I use to-do lists and uh, I think I'm pretty, pretty good, good at using some, uh, some digital things to my benefit and just keeping myself in, in check, good accountability with my elders and my staff here at the church and uh, just keep at it, man. Yeah, I'm curious actually specifically about the the YouTube channel. You've been doing that for a long time. You, I was just looking before we got on, you're almost at 20,000 subscribers and you're just insanely consistent with it. And you're kind of, you're, it's, it's so much helpful stuff and a lot of just things that are, that are interesting to you, a lot of Edward stuff and you've built a following and, and you look in the comments and people really love it. It's just, how long have you been doing the YouTube thing? And is that the same sort of thing where you just like, okay, every week I'm going to have a new video and you just do it. Like talk yes. about that a little bit. <laughs> well, the, the YouTube channel actually started off as a, a Bible review channel um, and Bibles and books is what I first started off doing. Uh, I do love Bibles, have a bunch of Bibles you can probably see in the, in the background here. I got cool stuff. I like my tools, kind of nerdy that way. Mm -hmm. So I started off just doing videos of particular Bibles, just kind of recommending things I think are helpful. Uh, wide margin Bibles in particular, I'm a, I'm a devoted wide margin Bible note taker. So I've always kind of been into that. Um, but then I just started doing what I call talk to the camera videos where I just set up my little $60 webcam up here. And I just start talking about things about pastoral ministry or theology or books or life or whatever. And uh, actually that's the direction I really want to go with my YouTube channel in the future is not so much books and Bibles, but just uh, talk to the camera theology and pastoral ministry videos. But as far as the consistency, yes, uh, this is another one of these things where I just have a weekly routine where I do the same thing over and over every week, all the time. Every Wednesday, I prep for Wednesday night Bible study. Every Thursday, I write my sermon. Every Friday, I make my video. And, <laughs> you know, I just try to stay consistent with all those things. And um, I use some, some digital tools and things like that to kind of sketch out my ideas for future episodes, future sermons, future videos. I do a lot of pre uh, pre-brainstorming of things that I'd like yeah. to talk about in the future. And so, yeah, I post my sermon um, once a week, trying to grow that particular genre of, you know, video content too. But every Friday, I pretty much record a video on whatever topic. And sometimes they're short, five minutes, sometimes they're long, 55 minutes. But uh, whatever I'm thinking about, that's what I talk about. And people tend to show up. So I'm thankful for that. That's really cool. Talk to us a little bit about the tools. What what digital tools are you using right now to to organize, to brainstorm, to to, to do all that? Well, I don't know if this is going to be Reagan Rose approved to what I say here, <laughs> um, because there's probably a better way to do everything that I do. 
But I have bought into the idea that if you're going to choose a digital ecosystem, then the best thing to do is just to stay with that ecosystem in general. Um, so I chose to use Google products. Now I have a lot of big problems with Google as a, as a company, their ideology, uh, their worldview. I have some very strong concerns about cens censorship and things like that. But the one thing that's nice about using a Google ecosystem is that everything syncs with everything else. Mm -hmm. So I've got my Gmail and I've got my YouTube channel and I use my Google Docs and my Google Slides and my Google Keep, which is my note taking system. Keep is a lot like Evernote. So for those of you who use Evernote or something else, it does about the same things, but I keep all kinds of little note files um, I have my Google to-do list. I use Google podcast. So I've just kind of, for the sake of simplicity, just bought into that one ecosystem. I know there's probably all kinds of reasons why that's not the best idea. Maybe there's other products or maybe you're concerned about um, uh, technological authoritarianism or overreach. I'm concerned about all those things too. But for the moments, I've just kind of decided I'm going to be like a one platform type person to just use everything because it syncs so easily together. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I, I often joke that whatever productivity gains I make are often uh, <laughs> lost with how much I get into the shiny new tool syndrome and try, oh, let me try putting my notes in this thing. Oh, let me try test this thing out and migrate everything and learn all these new processes and spend a weekend doing that and any 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 gains I've made or lost. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in picking a tool set and sticking with it. If it works, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah, like that's that. right. And then I don't like cross pollinate between like Apple and Google, for instance, where I don't have an iPhone. I did have an iPhone a while back and I, I didn't, I never really liked it. And I don't use Apple uh, laptops or anything like that. I just have everything that's Google slash Android. And then everything seems to go really, really well, yeah. really smoothly. Um, I have a friend who I was telling him just the other day, he was telling, he's talking about emailing himself to do's. And I'm like, dude, why do you email yourself? <laughs> he's like, well, that's how I do my to-do list. And I'm like, well, if you're, you use Gmail, right? I mean, the little to-do list literally pops up in the toolbar to the right side of the screen. Why don't you just use that? And he's like, oh, didn't know that. So I, I just find that it's uh, it's super helpful to do all that. But um I also, I think you'll appreciate this. I have a balance in my note-taking systems between things that are digital and things that are handwritten. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a whole series of different kinds of notebooks that I use for all kinds of things. And uh, if you'd like, we could probably move into that discussion area. If you'd I like. would love to. Yeah, we. This is this is a big one. I wanted to follow up with you on because we did. We got into this back in our original episode, and and for people listening, I'll, I'll include a link to that too. Um, but we, I, I know we touched some on the digital, but a lot of your stuff was still very paper-based and I, I'm curious to, to hear what's evolved, what's different. Um, and maybe, maybe you could give us an overview of the major components. What are their different types of notebooks in your system? What do they do and, and how you, how you interact with them with physical products, paper and pen and digital. Yeah. Maybe start with what, what are the different elements or what's your philosophy behind it? Okay, so my philosophy is essentially Edwardsian, and this goes back to my love of Jonathan Edwards. Somebody needs to write a book. Uh, maybe it'll be you and me. Wouldn't that be awesome? We should team up here. That would be fun. Ed Edwards, the um, the productivity guru, or something like that. Edward, yeah, I like the that. Organizer. I don't know. We'll, we'll come up with a cool title. 
But man, Jonathan Edwards, how about this? Not only was he a, th a theologian and a philosopher, but we're talking about one of the most incredibly organized minds that has probably ever existed. Not only did, was he gifted with a tremendous amount of genius, which we can't just conjure that up, unfortunately. Um, there's no genius pill. But man, he was extraordinarily organized with this series of notebooks. And so I actually got inspired by this and I decided, all right, you know what? I'm going to throw myself into this and I'm going to completely emulate the system of Jonathan Edwards for his note-taking. So let me let me explain um, what that is. So the first thing that, that this involves is one's Bible, okay? So Edwards, as a pastor, as a theologian, he had one of the most unique Bibles of all time. I can't remember if we talked about this, Reagan. I'm sorry if we covered this. I, I think we did, but it's, it'll be good to cover anyway. Okay, yeah. so we'll just start here. So Edwards had this Bible called the Blank Bible. It was a specially made Bible. He got it from his brother-in-law through his wife. And it was a Bible that had literally been taken apart in Old King James and had been stitched back together with a blank page between, uh, between every page of the, of the biblical text. Now, interestingly, because of the interest in note-taking and note-taking Bibles and wide margining, Crossway has actually made a Jonathan Edwards blank Bible now. You can get really? it. Yes, I've got mine right here. Huh. Now, mine looks a little bit cooler because I had it rebound by Rustic Leatherworks, who's awesome. Uh, he, he rebounded for me. But, but this is my Edwardsian blank Bible. So this is my primary source of biblical notes. And as a pastor, I'm constantly taking notes for sermon prep and teaching and things like that. Uh, so this is kind of the, the first base here as far as the note taking goes. Now, the second thing that I've emulated from Jonathan Edwards is a series of notebooks that he called his miscellanies. Now, actually, Edwards used his miscellanies even more than his blank Bible because he started it first. But for our case here, we'll call this uh, the second second base. But his miscellanies was a system of notes where he would write on any given topic, could be biblical, could be theological, could be historical, could be personal. And he would number each miscellany. Uh, for instance, we'll call it miscellany number 95 or something like that. And then um, he would write that out in full in his miscellanies notebook. And then he would cross-reference that to his blank Bible and in his blank Bible, then he would know where to go for that for that particular miscellany written in long form. Okay, so so there, there's basically a uh, he has to use an economy of of words because there's space limitations in the blank Bible. But yes. with the miscellany, he has this ongoing thing. He can he can write as much as he wants because he's just appending and then referencing back to the to the Bible with some is a numbering system or lettering or what? How did he yeah, do, that's, how the references? You're, you're exactly right. So with the blank Bible, you have a limited amount of space because there's only one sheet between each page of the Bible, which is helpful because you can make your Bible essentially an index of all of your thoughts. But with the miscellanies, he could write one, two, 10, even in a couple of cases, a hundred or more pages on one particular topic, and then just put that miscellany note as a reference in his Bible. So I've begun doing that. I've been emulating the Edwardsian miscellany system. And my miscellanies I have, I'm just grabbing off my shelf here. I now have 107 miscellanies that I've written out in wow. form in my, my book here. And when I fill up this particular notebook, then I will just start another notebook and it'll be volume two, but I'll continue on that, that numbering system. That's so cool. Yeah. So that's, um, 
that's the one thing I've, I've done. Now, Edwards has another set of notebooks that he calls his notes on scripture, which is done exactly the same way. He just starts with number one and he goes on up to several hundred. And those are um, Edwards's notes just on the Bible, whereas he has his miscellanies and he has his blank Bible. For Edwards, that's still not enough space. And so he has a whole nother set of notebooks that he calls his notes on scripture. Now, you probably don't need to have all three of these, Reagan, to be completely honest. Probably one or two of these systems together would work. But Edwards is writing notes all the time. And he has his reasons for why a particular idea might end up in the blank Bible or the miscellanies or his notes on scripture. And some of that's not clear as to why he chooses to write it in one place versus the other. What is clear is that each one of these notebooks are mutually referential to the others so that he can find certain topics very easily. And you can almost anticipate that what he's doing here is setting up hyperlinks between non-digitized resources. That's exactly what he's doing. We might think yeah. of that as just a hyperlink, but that he's just doing that by referencing his notebooks one to the other. What's, what, what's so fascinating about the system is it like, it almost, it, it's anticipatory of of digital tools and, and hyperlinking. And I'm sure you are you're aware of these these tools, but there's been a very large rise, and we might have talked about this before, in uh, personal knowledge management tools. You know, a lot of it based on um, Sonke Ahrens wrote a book called How to Take Smart Notes, something along those, I think that's the title of it. And this Zadel Kastan, people write about it. It's about this specific researcher and his indexing method. And when I first read that book, it was after we'd had our conversation. I thought, mm -hmm. this is very similar to what Edwards did. He, he had a little file card box with um, index cards on them. And he'd write a little bit about what he, he uh, you know, him, he was, he was reading academic literature. He'd write a little bit about what he thought, and then he'd have a reference to something where he'd write even more about it. And he used this to basically pre-write his um, academic papers and books. And so when he got to, you know, I'm going to write on this topic, he'd go into his little file card box and say, what have I written on this? And he'd already written it. And I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, I would imagine that if you go deep into Edward's stuff, you probably see the nascent ideas that make their way into his his books and his sermons later on. A hundred percent. In fact, uh, with a book like Freedom of the Will, Edwards did not just sit down one day and say, you know, I think I'm going to solve the problem of God's sovereignty with relationship to human responsibility. But instead, what we see is that he imports wholesale out of whole cloth, entire miscellanies from time to time in which much of that book and several of his other sermons are just lifted from his own notebooks and his, his own documentation. That's so amazing. I've begun to do this. I, I, I don't know how many other people are out there actually doing Edwards' system, but I'm trying to do the entire thing. So um, this is all on my, my paper and pen stuff. But then mm -hmm. Reagan, I also started another couple of notebooks that are digital only. And the reason that I moved to digital, in addition to these, not as a replacement, is because with digital stuff, much like a note card system, you have the advantage of being able to add something in between and shoving everything up yes. and down, which you can't do in notebooks. And so I have uh, three notebooks that I have now that are digitally entirely digital. 
um, in which I, I do this for the sake of being able to move data up and down. So I have- And those are Google Docs, I'm guessing? Yes, yes. They're yeah, simple okay. Google Docs. You don't have to be super fancy here. But I have a very long 300-page document on systematic theology, where I, I started off teaching a leadership class, and I outlined, I think, Sproul, Sproul's book or something like that. And then the next year, I taught through Frame, and I took the same notes, and I just spliced them together and made it twice as long. And then I just kept adding to that, adding to that, adding to that. So I have an entire series of, of notes on every category of systematic theology. So I have that. And then I have another notebook that I started doing the same thing. Well, I'm going to do it on philosophy too. So uh, I have a whole notebook. It's not quite as long. I think this one's only about 50 pages, um, but I have an outline of the history of and development of philosophy. So I go from the ancients all the way up to, you know, more, more modern philosophers and whenever I come across an interesting nugget or a quote, boom, I just splice that baby in to where it goes in roughly chronological order. So I've got my theology notebook, my philosophy notebook, and then what I call my digital miscellanies, which is similar to my mis miscellanies notebook, but this time I keep them alphabetized. And that's why I have to do a digital because I'm, I'm adding them in to where they go but these would be my sermon illustrations and quotes that I want to use later. And whenever I use one, I just date it. So I know the last time I used that quote, I don't want to do it two weeks from now. Um, so I have that notebook is, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred pages by now. And so those are my three main digital notebooks and then my hard notebooks. And it's all based on an Edwardsian system of keeping track of content. That is fascinating. You know, I, I'm, I kind of nerd out a lot on the different tools and trying new things, which I alluded to earlier, sometimes causes problems. And it's a, a lot of questions. A lot of times people ask me, you know, do you want to like some of these popular personal knowledge management tools include like Obsidian is a newer one and, and Rome Research or Notion or whatever. And people ask, which one should I use? And I think I think you would agree with this. It seems to me that what's more most important than the tools is your philosophy. Because I, my own experience has been if I, I get a new tool, I try to plug a bunch of stuff in there, before long, I just have a mess on my hands. Edwards is working with paper and pen, very few options. And it seems almost that maybe the limitations of the tool set served to to uh, keep it organized. You know, with computers, you almost have limitless opportunities of how you can reorganize or redo things or recategorize. And you, if you don't have discipline in what your, your objective and your rules for your system are, things can get out of hand fast. Yeah, I think the key for me has just been pick a system and then stick with it. Yeah. Like there may not be the perfect system, but no system is going to work if you're not actually consistent with it. So like, for instance, with sermon illustrations, I think if you're a pastor and you're going to be in the pulpit regularly, you're shooting yourself in the foot if at some point you don't start keeping track of these in whatever way you want to. Mm -hmm. um, right. It's hard to sit down and from scratch with a blank sheet of paper, write a sermon every single week um, because you're not always going to have the time to do the commentary work or the, the systematic theological work that you, that you would like to do under ideal con conditions. So you're saving yourself time in the long run by getting yourself organized now. And you could do that in so many different ways. If you want to do it digitally, that's totally fine. But if you want to keep your sermon illustrations in a shoebox, that's fine too. 
But if you try to do both, then you're splitting your effort over a number of different mechanisms. And it's probably best to just go ahead and pick one that's simple that you'll actually stick with and then keep it for the long haul. So, you know, when I first decided that I was going to keep a digital miscellaneous system, I was kind of mad at myself that I didn't do it 10 years earlier. But I'm really glad now that I started it couple of years ago, because now I've got yeah. a, a treasure of stuff to use. And I want to just keep building that over the years. But you're just wasting time if you don't finally just pick one system, make it simple, just a word doc, and uh, get going and get yourself in order. No, that's really well said. Yeah, I I think a lot of times we get stuck in the in the tool, um, <laughs> in the valley of despair there, where we're, we're trying to figure out which thing do I use? And you'll do that for months, sometimes years. And you know that I'm reading all these books anyway. I should be taking notes on them, but I don't know how I would organize them. So instead of taking notes on them in in some way, you just do nothing. And then, uh, you, you know, you, you can fall in. I know I do. You fall into that lie. Well, I'll just I'll just go back to this book later if I want to get some notes out of it. But you don't go back or you don't remember what the book was, or you don't remember the right. thing was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, I have a friend who's a pastor um, in California and he's, um, he's older than, than both of us. And so he still is pretty analog in the way that he works, but he has a whole book of illustrations. That's like cut and paste, you know, and, and it's, it's like a craft. It's like something, you know, your, your mother-in-law would make, uh, you know, <laughs> for a scrapbook, but it works. And he's got a category, he's got categories. And so when he goes and he does a, a sermon and he, he needs an illustration about faith, he just goes and looks through these illustrations and he's got countless ones of them because he's in, been in ministry for so long. And yeah, I, I just, I think of it like that with note taking in general, especially on the Bible, but just in general, you are helping your future self out. And even if you don't know how you're going to use it, having somewhere to put your thoughts uh, it, it pays dividends in the long run for sure. Yeah. I don't know why you wouldn't do that. I mean, why would you make your life intentionally harder if you're the kind of person that, um, it, it needs to churn out content, whether it's, uh, maybe you're, a, maybe you're just a teacher in school. Maybe you teach, I don't know, gym class. Well, get your, get your gym games in, in order, right? So you don't mm-hmm. have to right. reinvent your curriculum every year. My goodness. If you're going to do anything, that's even somewhat repetitive that, require some kind of creative ingenuity on your part to prepare uh, teachers, college professors, um, man, anything I would, you know, you have to just, just do it. Just get yourself going. Yeah. I agree. Uh, someone's going to ask me this, so I should ask you, <laughs> do you back up in any way your physical stuff? Like do you scan it or do you, you don't have someone retype it? I'm just curious. Like I know this nitty gritty, no, and that's that's one of my fears. But I think that fear cuts both ways because um, on one hand, with the physical stuff like the notebooks and my my wide margin Bibles and things like that, the risk, of course, is that well, what if you lose that thing? Okay, well, you're right; it would definitely be gone. I mean, that'd be a tragedy if I ever lost this particular Bible right here. Uh, that'd be a major problem for me because I all that stuff's just gone. Now, I do keep all my sermons in a file just off the screen here in order of uh, scriptural text. So I have about this many sermons now. I've been preaching for 20-some years in, in biblical order all the way through the canon. So in some sense, what's here would be backed up on my, my sermons. But again, if there's a yeah. fire that destroyed the office, I'm in the same situation. 
But I've asked myself this question, whether digital content is more secure than, um, than physical. And I can't really answer that question because it seems to me just as likely that I could eventually be become deplatformed by Google and lose right. all of my digital content anyway. So right. what's to say that 10 years from now or five or three, I don't say the wrong thing on YouTube and uh, Google decides to lock me out of my channel and then has also looked at some of my my Google Docs and my emails and find out that I'm uh, you know I'm a nonconformist in terms of their worldview and then maybe I'll just lose everything digitally anyways. So unless I'm going to obsess about um, saving it in all kinds of different formats and things like that, I just have to realize that I guess I could conceivably lose it all any way you slice it. What do you think about that? I'm interested to know. Like, have you? Yeah. What, what, what's the pro, what's the solution to that? Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a there is a is a perfect solution because I've thought a lot about it too. Like, it's similar to you in a lot of ways. I I, I you know I keep a physical journal. And that's mostly personal stuff, but I often think, well, what about a fire or what if, what if I take it on a plane and lose it or whatever? And yeah, that does happen, but I have lost far more digital things in the course of my life than I have physical things. Like it's rare for me to, to lose a notebook and even fires in homes are are rare in our day and age, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But digital stuff, there are there are so many risks. Like the one you mentioned, platform risk, that's huge. And you think that you're safe, you know, even if you even if you're not on Google, you're using, you know, I'm back, I'm backing it up on Dropbox or some other service. Like you hear about these people that have been deplatformed from everything. Like they can't use Amazon web services, they can't even bank, right? There's always some level of risk. And so someone will say, well, well, you could have multiple physical backups. You know, I've gone down this road and thought, okay, I'll have a backup here and then I'll keep another one off site. And at some point you say to yourself, what, what is the time, what is the time I'm dedicating to this? And what, like, what is this all worth? Say I lost all of this, these ideas in nascent form, that would be, a, it would be a tragedy, but you know, you also could die today. <laughs> And yeah. no one would have, and no one may ever look at your files again, too. And so, me, I, I kind of think in terms of like, ultimately, what is this thing I'm doing? My, my notes. What is this? They're ultimately things that are here to serve me now. And so, I, I try to take care to do them. But like, it's, it's one tool. It's not my brain. It's not my, my treasure. It's a tool to help me be better at producing things that I put out there in the world. And so. I do try to take precautions. You know, I have, I have backups of, of different things in different ways. But if you obsess over it, you'll drive yourself crazy and you won't get anything done. You know what? This whole conversation reminds me of an anecdote from history. And forgive me if I get the details wrong. I, I should probably get this uh, more sure in my mind. But it, it strikes me that William Tyndale, who was um, one who translated the Bible into English in the very original editions of English translation, he did the New Testament first and the Old Testament, which is a much greater task having to work from Hebrew rather than Greek. And plus the length is just like manifold longer than the New Testament. He had his original draft of the Hebrew translated into the English and apparently lost the entire thing in a ship incident where it sunk in the water. And yet, um, just by his determination and the grace of God and the resolution of his will, it just started over. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, imagine losing 
yeah. all of that. I mean, I had that happen years. a couple of times where I lost a paper in college and it was like a two page paper and I was devastated because I didn't save it. <laughs> I cannot imagine with a full book. My goodness. <laughs> I know. And something as precious as the scriptures too. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the moral of the story there as well, if you lost everything, you'd just go on, right? I mean, assuming you're not dead, yeah. you would just start over the next day and just begin where you are. And mm -hmm. you just keep plugging along, trying to faithfully serve the Lord in whatever way you possibly could. Well, I think it's related to what you, you mentioned, safetyism or safeism before, like, there is that mentality of trying to make the impermanent permanent. And I think we imbibe that in much deeper ways than we think. We do it with our own lives or we think that we're going to live forever or that we can preserve ourselves perfectly. And if I just insulate myself enough from germs or, or risk, then, uh, you know, something will happen. But like people die in the, in the weirdest ways and the most strangest, you know, things you fall down the stairs. Like you can't, you can't de-risk life completely in the physical world. And I think the same is true of how we manage our knowledge and, and everything else. Like, you just have a have to have a reasonable balance between taking precautions and not being like a total worry war. That's that's kind of how I think about it, you know, because I don't want to constantly be thinking about that thing and and, and think it's going to be life ending. Yeah, not only that, but then um, you know, I kind of personalize this discussion. I think, well, you know, I'm really a pastor. That's what I do. I'm not an information storage system myself. Right. Um, I'm a writer, but only tangentially to my calling as a minister. And so I know that my real long-term um, contribution to the kingdom, to the church, is going to be through my preaching. Mm -hmm. And um, sermons are an interesting medium to work with because it's an oral mode of communication. It's not Sermons aren't necessarily meant to be written. They're meant to be preached. And it's you, transient by nature. Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. you you preach it on a Sunday. I mean, you bring all of your study and your preparation and your prayer to the pulpit. You deliver it as a man on fire, uh, one soul speaking to to other souls with that the aid and assistance of the Holy Spirit. It's a glorious mm -hmm. thing. But then when you when you say the final amen, it's over. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's been preached. It's done its work as far as the 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 sovereignty of God uses these things. And so um, there's a sense in which you don't have to save it necessarily. Um, hmm. It's been preached. It, it, it met yeah. its use. And not only that, but whenever I've tried to re-preach sermons, I do that from time to time because Edwards did. So that must be right. Um, <laughs> they don't always seem to have the benefit that they did right. when it was originally preached. Like usually when I try to re-preach a sermon, it doesn't come out as well the second yeah. time. I've had I the same experience. Yeah, I can't put my finger on why that is. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's maybe the sermon is meant for that particular group of people at that particular time. Yeah, and it's um, it's once it's out, it's like it's it's like breath in the wind. It's gone, you know. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Maybe this is a little too philosophical, but you like philosophy. But I just think I think in terms of like where what the the terminal point of value is, right? Like. I love what you're talking about with the sermon is what it ultimately, what, what is the purpose of it? The purpose of it is that you would see that you would see people converted, that you would see um, people transformed, that God would be glorified. And those things can't, uh, they don't show up on a computer or in a bank statement. And it just, it reminds me of, of 
our Lord's words where he says, you know, don't store up treasure here on earth, store it up where moth doesn't destroy that there there's a, we can, I think we can fall into this trap with our money, right? Where you, you try to store up treasure here on earth with that, but you can do it with, with knowledge too, in how you're trying to store up, um, the, the, it's easy to evaluate, I know as, as a pastor, but in any line of work, evaluate your, um, your value by your body of work. And right. So I have all these sermons I've preached. That's wonderful. This is my treasure or, or I wrote these books or, or, um, whatever your, your, your calling or your career is, you have these ways of evaluating it, but ultimately value that, that matters ultimately is determined, um, in heaven. It determined it's, it's based on, and this is very Edwardsian, I suppose too, was God more glorified by the life that I lived where people loved, right? Like, however I manage the, the incidentals of how I do that, how I use my time, how I, how I work today, ultimately it's just a question of did, was God glorified through it? And the, the details will be, you know, they'll, they'll be burned up in the final analysis. Um, and so you can't get fixated on them. Yeah. Preach it brother. Um, I needed to hear that, you know, I mean, I have to admit in some of my own sinful inclinations, my ambitions and things like that, I tend to try to count um, publications. You know, you publish an article here, an essay here, a book there, and you think, oh, that's a, there's a, there's a win for the kingdom right there. It's something tangible. And we, we like to point at things that we can tally up things that are tangible, um, even non-tangible tangibles, like how many subscribers you have to your channel. Right. And, like that. and you kind of think that that's what, what counts, but at the end of the day, no, it's, it's all about, um, this, it's all about the kingdom, the gospel, the souls that you're caring for, uh, preaching through first Thessalonians right now. And one of the things that Paul says is that his crown and his glory is you. He's talking to the Thessalonians mm. that he I sees that. his people as that, which he is, the striving towards his reward is not the crown of the athlete or the crown of the emperor, but his crown is the the good and the upbuilding of, of the church. And uh, it's good. It's good to think about those things. When you, when you think about permanence versus impermanence, what is, what is vanity? What is going to float away in the wind? And, and what is that which lasts forever? And for Paul, it's the, the good of the church and the glory of Christ. Well said. Well, I think that's a really good high point to uh, to end on. I've really enjoyed our conversation. We we need to do this more. I need to make you like a regular guest or something because I every time we talk, I I walk away encouraged and inspired and challenged. So really appreciate you, brother, and your ministry and this book. Um, the book again is called Holy Living. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' seventeen or seventy resolutions for living the Christian life. What else? How else can people follow you? You have a YouTube channel. I'll link to that as well. YouTube, uh, Twitter, Facebook, though I keep Facebook mostly for people I actually know, um, but be glad to connect. And again, just throw out that invitation, man. If you're anywhere north of Pittsburgh, please come see me in real life sometime. Love to shake your hand, hug your neck. Uh, Reagan, thanks for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate your stuff. You're doing great things. I've benefited from you myself personally. So keep doing what you're doing and I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks, brother. See you next time. For more productivity from a Christian worldview, check out my weekly newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. Every Thursday, I share an insight along with the five best links I found that week. 
that I think will help you in your journey to becoming a more productive Christian. It's totally free. Just go to newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com to sign up for Reagan's Roundup. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com. Thank you.